By now, most people listening to this know the details. Missouri Governor Eric Greitens admitted to an extramarital affair before he became governor, but denied allegations that he blackmailed the woman from revealing the infidelity. It's a story that's made national and international headlines, but it's also prompted soul-searching among Missouri's political class. Lawmakers from both parties are compartmentalizing the possibility of Greitens resigning. As of Thursday afternoon, the governor is committed to staying in office. But close to a half dozen Republican lawmakers feel the governor should go, including longtime supporters like State Representative Nate Walker of Kirksville. I've been around government and uh, state government in particular. I've experienced uh, lots of different uh, scandals and different situations, and I just felt that for the betterment of the state of Missouri and for the betterment uh, of probably the governor, this is what he needs to do. If Greitens changes his mind, Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson would serve out the rest of the governor's term. While both men are Republicans, Parson has diverged from Greitens on some major public policy issues. For instance, Parson explained on a recent episode of this show why he disagreed with Greitens' bid to halt state low-income housing tax credits. Nobody's coming to a town of 400 people to provide housing. Now, you can take the tough man side of that and say, okay, we're, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to let them people go. The reality of it is those people in those small towns of 400 people are still there. So what are they going to do? They're going to go somewhere at the end of the day. So when we have those programs available, um, I just think uh, to just act like we're just going to do away with them is not a good plan. And I've said that openly. And, and you know, I, and I know the question become is that I'm disagreeing with the governor, but I didn't get elected to, to agree with the governor on everything he does, and I'm already not going to. But it's not just tax credits where Parson differs from Greitens. And to break that down, we're talking today with Representative Crystal Quaid, a Democrat from Springfield and a member of the powerful House Budget Committee. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens. Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. Hi, everybody. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, the co-host of the Politically Speaking podcast and a reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. My colleague Joe Manis will join me in just a second. Today, we are talking with State Representative Crystal Quaid. She is a Democrat from Springfield. This is the first time she's been on this show. And before we talked about the issue of the day, which is the embattled Governor Eric Greitens, we did, as is customary, ask her a little bit about herself and her district. So I am the only Democrat um, in the southern half of the state. I represent the 132nd district, which is Center City Springfield. So I have Missouri State University and Ozarks Technical Community College um, in my district. And I'm a social worker by trade. And um, I really got involved in the political process as a social work student at Missouri State University. I did a my legislative or my internship was the legislative internship program through the university. So I had, you know, I had never anticipated running for office or, or being a political figure, but I knew that legislative policy had a huge impact in what I wanted to do as a social worker and to help Missourians. And so I thought I'd go to Jeff City and learn a bit, little bit more and 
quite frankly, upon about my second week here as an intern, I decided that I wanted to run for office. <laughs> and um, a lot of career moves post-graduation got me to this point. When, when did you, I know that you uh, worked for now former Representative Charlie Knorr of Springfield, is that correct, first yes, of all? Yes, yes. Uh, when did you start doing that? Uh, well, I interned for him um, in 2008 um, and then did some campaign for work for him, but I actually went over to Senator Claire McCaskill's office in the constituent services realm uh, after graduation in 2008. Okay, and were you there from that point until you ran for office in 2016? Oh, no. <laughs> I figured not. I figured no. you did more between um, that and yeah, that year. Yeah, I worked for the U.S. Senate for a few years, um, and then I did some campaign work for Organizing for America, um, and then got back into, into the nonprofit sector. And I've spent the last almost five years working for a great nonprofit based out of Springfield called Care to Learn. Um, and then I've, I've definitely stepped back in, since I'm becoming a legislator, but that was an organization that provides basic funding for children's uh, basic needs in the classroom. So we partner with school districts across the state for hunger, health, and hygiene needs. So I've been in the nonprofit sector for a little over five years um, working there in Springfield in the community. Well, as you mentioned, you're in, you're in sort of a lonely status politically since you are the, uh, the only Democrat uh, from that part of the state. I think in, in, in southern Missouri, you don't mm -hmm. have to go back very far, only about 10 years or a little more where there was a crowd of them. Um, so that being said, how do you kind of see, uh, I mean, you're having to uh, align yourselves with rural, Demo I mean, urban Democrats, since that's about the only thing there. I'm just interested in how you kind of forge um, getting anything done or how you forge alliances being in such an unusual situation. Yeah, well, my district, um, you know, is a very much a 50-50 district. Um, I'm the only Democrat who actually won in 2016. Uh, so President Trump and, and the governor all the way down, aside from myself on the Republican side, won. Um, and so that's something I am definitely cognizant of every day that I come to work in this building, um, is that, you know, my district has mixed views. It's not one particular party or another, um, very much unlike some of our other Democratic districts in Kansas City and St. Louis. Um, and so... To, to answer your question very basically, I do, try to do my job the best I can as a representative and represent my district from all different angles. In terms of getting things done, um, you know, I, I knew coming into this I'd be in a super minority um, and that I am surrounded by Republicans down in Springfield. And so I, I try to find places that we can collaborate and work together. I'm actually carrying a bill for my senator, Senator Bob Dixon. Um, I've done work with Representative Lynn Morris and just trying to find folks that, um, that we can align on similar issues, things around poverty, around education, um, and push those things the best I can. We'll talk more about how the weeks and months ahead could affect some of those issues. But one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this show is when I was scrolling through my Facebook feed around the time the news broke that the governor admitted to having an extramarital affair but denied the accusations that he blackmailed a woman into not revealing the infidelity. And this is an affair from early 2015. We, we need to make that clear before he even had announced his candidacy. So... Your your Facebook post on this, as I mentioned before I press record, was probably one of the most nuanced and interesting um, observations about this. And I'll obviously link to it on our webpage. But if you could just kind of express your sentiments about this entire situation. I'd like to give you, give you a few minutes to do that. Definitely. Thank you. Um, well, I think nuance is a very good word for this situation right now. Um, and, and to add to that kind of the 
cultural and societal conversation around sexual abuse and harassment and uh, the Me Too movement, you know, that, that folks have been quoting. Um, and so when I first heard the news break and the governor had admitted to the affair expressed uh, and the first lady had expressed that they had worked through that, um, that that was a private matter and they had moved on, um, for me, I accepted that as they have moved on. It was a, a something that he had been honest with his wife on and, quite frankly, was not something that I was as concerned about. Um, what was what was the most concerning to me, and I think a lot of folks keep, keep coming back to it, are the potential criminal allegations that, that are unfolding. Um, and of course, the more we hear, um, the more concerning those allegations get. Um, but when we talk about the overall cultural shift that I am, I'm hoping for, and I think a lot of women are hoping for around um, these issues, I think one of the big things that we lose sight of is um, the potential victim um, or whoever is alleging that these things happen. And in my Facebook post, I just alluded to that if, if these allegations are in fact true, I hope that we can continue to be cognizant of the fact that this woman has not come forward with her story and that she actually has repeatedly asked not for the story to be shared. Um, and, and I'm not, I, I did not come out saying, you know, that Missourians don't have a right to know what's going on. I do believe that we do, especially when we're talking about criminal, potential criminal offenses. But we need to be, be aware that this woman has not asked for this. And if this did happen, the potential re-victimization that she's going through. Um, every time a new Me story comes forward, a Me, me Too story comes forward of a public figure, Every woman or, or man who has gone through this type of assault or abuse could potentially be reliving their own story. And it's triggering and it's hard and it's difficult. And I think that as we are continuing to have this dialogue around these issues, we need to be aware of that. And when we're just in how we're discussing it, how, you know, the press is moving forward. And I think the press in Missouri did a very good job of, of um, you know, holding back and waiting and, and not coming forward when she had asked not to. And, you know, we've, we've all seen the articles around that. But I just wanted to make a post early before we really knew all the details. And we still don't know all the details. We're learning a lot still. Um, but just to kind of wave a flag and say, hold on, before you start, you know, whatever conclusion you're going to come to based on your own morals of what's going on, be sure to remember that if this woman is in fact, if these allegations are in fact true, that she's a victim and is not asking for her story to be told. Yes, I totally agree with that. And, but I I think that one of the things that's being missed locally and in some cases nationally is actually for average people. I think while there's a little pure interest in this, I think they're mainly interested in what's going to affect them, how this whatever it is is going to affect their um pocketbook and their lives and I think that uh, officials in both parties I mean I'm looking nationally right now tend to sometimes get more focused on Trump's behavior than on what the impact of certain policies are Mm -hmm. and I think in Missouri I think the average person really wants to know what the impact on their policy is and that's one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in the state budget Uh, I was in Jeff City when all this broke. I was covering the State of the State Address. The governor's State of the State Address focused on his new call for tax cuts, which is in addition to the tax cuts that are still going into effect that the General Assembly had approved several years ago Mm -hmm. and the federal (laughs) tax cuts that are just beginning to get into effect after they were approved in December. You sit on the House Budget Committee. So I'm interested in 
what you've heard so far and what what you see as sort of the impact of some of the budget cuts in effect and those that might be necessary if some more tax cuts go in place. I'm just interested in what, what is happening uh, because I think in some cases this is more um, important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, in terms of what's going on in the the outside the building with the governor, um, it honestly hasn't quite impacted the budget process at this point. We are still waiting for, for the budget uh, proposals from the governor's office, but we're being told we'll get them on Monday, um, which is not too much delayed compared to last year. Um, governors previously tend to give them out the same day as the state of the state, but it, he is still within his his time frame to get the budget request to us. So as far as I know, in that front, um, the budget process is moving along timely um, as it's supposed to. Um, so that's the good news. <laughs> um, in terms of cuts and the potential even more cuts that we're seeing, um, what's worrisome for me as someone who sits on budget is there's a lot of unknowns. So. When it comes to the federal changes that we've seen, we have an estimate that it will impact us uh, to the tune of $58 million um, loss that we're going to have. But that number has not been agreed upon by everyone. (laughs) And we've had some economists say it's going to be much more than that. Um, So that's one concern is, is what does that look like? And if you add that into the potential potential governor's additional cuts that, you know, we haven't seen yet. He canceled his tax tour that was supposed to start this week. So we haven't seen his tax proposal yet. Um, but if he is, poten- is if he is planning on putting forth more cuts, we, you know, those numbers with the unknowns of the federal level are extremely concerning in a year that we are just, before we even start having conversations about more cuts, are already going to have to cut the budget back um, based on from the numbers of last year and the, the growth that we've had and the costs that we've had. So, you know, there was a lot of fights last year around in-home services for seniors and folks with disabilities. Higher ed took a really big cut. Um, there, were a, there were a lot of cuts that a lot of folks were really upset about. And you add even more tax cuts to that, then it's concerning of what else is to come. Well, this is one of the reasons I wanted to, to, to focus on how this situation is going to affect policy, because as of now, this as of Thursday at 1 p.m., uh, Greitens is still the governor, and for all we know, he could be the governor for the foreseeable future. But I'm going to play a clip now from Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson, and I apologize to our listeners if this audio is a bit grainy. I, I got it off his Facebook page before we started. This is the lieutenant governor talking about his desire to have an, a special session in 2017 to restore the cuts to in-home care for the poor and elderly. So he did this, what, eight months ago? Is this roughly? In September. Okay. okay. So here's, here's the lieutenant governor. As Missouri's official advocate for 1.3 million seniors and over 480,000 veterans, I am urging the General Assembly to find an alternative funding source and restore the cuts so many keep so we may keep Missourians friendly to veterans, seniors, and those with disabilities. I understand difficult choices have to be made concerning state revenue and programs. However, I feel it is critical to restore the funding to those who call Missouri home and cannot care for themselves. So again, this is pure speculation at this point, but there's a clear difference in philosophy between Governor Greitens and Lieutenant Governor Parson on this issue. I know because I was at a press conference in Jefferson City a few months ago, the in-home care cuts is an issue you've been working on for months. 
what are what are what are people who care about this issue thinking at this point in time about how the needle might be moved if Greitens ends up changing his mind and deciding to step down? To be honest with you, I don't know that that is the thought. I think the thought right now is still panic in the fact that our current governor does not support restoring that and that we are already seeing impacts to folks' lives, uh, particularly with the consumer-directed services, the MoRx programming, and then as well as the in-home care. Um, it would be wonderful if our governor agreed that putting seniors and folks with disabilities as a priority is what we should be doing in Missouri. But the fact is right now, as you said, Governor Greitens is the governor and does not support that. So I think folks are still very much in the mode of scrambling, trying to find solutions to con- to flip Republican voters, to su- or legislators to support this, and to, in the meantime, figure out how they're going to continue to live in their homes independently. So to answer your question, I don't know that that's even crossing their minds because what's currently happening is so detrimental to them that I I think we're just more concerned about the right now. Now, um, the whole point is, is that these cuts are going into effect. They have been going into effect for months because there has been no uh, changes in the state's uh, operations to reverse some of them. There have been widely different estimates on how many people are being affected. Mm -hmm. I've heard anywhere from 8,000 to 20,000 or more. Um, Have you got any solid numbers on how many people could be affected, maybe how many people already have been affected? Um, And this is statewide. This is not just an urban or a rural problem. Right. And and what's this issue is very complicated because it comes in several parts. So it's very easy to say, you know, cuts to services for folks with disabilities and seniors. But we're actually talking about several different types of services. We have consumer-directed services, which actually was not part of the restoration of House Committee Bill 3. And that, that we're seeing a huge impact on folks' simply ability to get out of bed in the morning and have an attendant help them get dressed before they go off to work for the day. Um, people have lost the amount of hours that they have people in their homes. So they're having to you know, choose between what day of the week they bathe because they need to have someone help them. Um, so that's one facet of it. Then we're talking about the point system change, and that's the one that we've had the biggest amount of um, that's the area that the estimates were um, vastly off. And so where folks thought there would be cost savings by cutting these people off, we're actually not seeing that savings. Um, And then we also have provider rates, which is um, a reimbursement rate that the state pays to the actual providers themselves. And so this is a multifaceted issue. Um, And so when we're talking estimates, it is difficult to do it because um, the assessment that we use in Missouri is very objective. Um, And so it is difficult to have those hardline numbers. What's important for me, and one of the reasons I continue to work on this issue, is you're talking about drastic life changes for someone who may be working full-time outside the home, just needs a couple hours of services a week, to now not being able to work at all and becoming completely dependent on state services. Um, So the numbers, um, you know, we're, we're trying to get a handle on exactly what this looks like, and every month those will be updated as folks are being assessed. Now, um, have you gotten any sense of if more people have had to go into nursing homes because they don't have this um, in-home care just to help them get ready and mm-hmm. get dressed? And Definitely. Take a, um, I actually take heard a, a bath. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I definitely, we heard a story just yesterday of a 32-year-old man who is married with children 
and um, had to move into a nursing home because they no longer had the in-home attendant. And so this was a gentleman who was working um, and was able to live his life independently with his family, his wife and children, and now he has to be in a home at age 32. Um, So it's happening. So talking more generally about the budget, obviously, even going back to like when Governor Matt Blunt was governor and he had a Republican legislature, oftentimes what the governor proposes to the legislature changes pretty drastically by the time the budget process is over. So with that with that context in mind, one thing that I've noticed this past week is even some people in the House who had supported Greitens in the past have started to become less uh, supportive of him since this news broke. Um, my question is, have you talked with some of your colleagues about whether they would be more inclined to push back against a budget that makes pretty deep cuts in important services or includes like large tax cuts um, and maybe chart a more independent course than just following what the governor wants at this point? I have not had those conversations. Um, but when I think through that, you know, I look at House Committee Bill 3 uh, specifically, um, when we passed it out of the House, um, you know, we had enough votes to pass it, and then the governor vetoed it, and then we went back to veto session, and um, a little over 20 of the Republican, my Republican colleagues, switched their vote and chose not to override the governor's veto. Um, so I do think that that plays a big role. Um, I, you know, I can't speak for them, and I, like I said, haven't had those conversations. But that vote in itself was pretty telling to me that um, they're going to support um, the the party and the governor. Um, and if that changes, um, you know, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. Now, um, with with this unrest because of the um, sex scandal, um, do you see any? either different approaches to policy, whether or not your fellow Republicans in the I mean, your your Republican colleagues in the House are being more receptive to possible changes from what the governor proposed, or is it too early to tell, Um, especially since we do have a lieutenant governor who holds different views on some Mm -hmm. of these issues? I honestly think it's too early to tell. Um, Things have been rolling pretty slow here. Um, It's only my second session. Um, Last year, we hit the ground running, but it has been interesting this session. Um, Things are going slower than last year. I don't know if that's related to what's going on um, with the governor or not, Um, but I I do think it's hard to tell at this point if if this is going to have an effect on what we're doing policy-wise. What is the climate for tax cuts, for more tax cuts, at least um, from what you're hearing even in your district? Yeah, well, I can tell you I was with uh, the my regional chamber last week, and they asked us to hold off. <laughs> and when the re- regional chambers are asking you to do that, I think that's that's telling for us. Um, I In my district specifically, I'm hearing a lot of more let's wait and see what's happening because this is – the amount that we are cutting um, is extremely detrimental in a lot of areas, just not even just healthcare. Um, but because there are so many unknowns in what's going on on the national level, um, I think folks want us to just take a breath and take a minute and try to figure out what's going on. You know, Missouri has one of the lowest unemployment rates, but yet we still are in a budget crisis. Um, the economy is striving, but we're still in a budget crisis. And why? And, you know, we could, I, 
a lot of folks will go back to Senate Bill 509 and the things that we're seeing come from that. And so I think the general consensus that I'm hearing is simply let's just wait and see what the further ramifications are going to be before we just start adding to the already very large deficit. Now, when you mentioned Senate Bill 509 for our listeners, you want to explain that really quick? Yeah, so that that's a, a bill, and I'm not going to be the best person to do it because this was before I was in the legislature, but it was a big uh, tax overhaul that passed, uh, I believe, in 2014, and there were triggers uh, for that to go into effect. So we are seeing every year um, new rollouts of that bill that then are affecting the um, the bottom line that we have to work with. Um, and so we are still seeing the, the last phases. I think, believe we have one more year after this um, for the full implementation of that bill. And um, essentially it, it, it gives tax cuts uh, to corporations and there were a lot of different provisions, but we it's definitely adding, uh, taking away from the numbers we have to work with. You know, I made this observation right after the governor's State of the State address. I think for a long time in Missouri politics, there has been a kind of an impulse to do things that I think are politically and legislatively easy. Like, it's an easy proposition to cut taxes in Missouri because you can do it just through the legislature, and it sounds good when you talk about it. Mm -hmm. It's easy to, you know, restrict abortion rights in the legislature because there are clearly enough people to do it and it becomes a major wedge issue in in some districts. But where things get difficult is when you actually have to provide more money for things that clearly need it, like transportation infrastructure, Mm -hmm. like higher education institutions, like in-home care for the disabled and elderly, or even just providing, you know, health care to the working poor. The Medicaid rate in Missouri is probably one of the lowest in the country. I, I, I am not I am not like a, like expecting this entire Greiton situation to magically change that mindset. But do you sense any appetite among your Republican colleagues to actually tackle some of the seemingly intractable issues that require actual money and are not just sort of, you know, checking off a list of of party priorities? Unfortunately, I I can't say that I do. (laughs) Um, I think, I don't know how much the situation with the governor really even plays into that conversation. Um, It's an election year. We have an election every two years in the state of Missouri um, for the House, and um, it almost feels like campaign season never stops. And so I think that you are spot on in saying that it's easy to talk about these things and they play well and um, it works for votes and it works for getting reelected. For people to really dig in and be willing to have a serious conversation about the budget crisis, about the social services we provide, about higher ed and transportation, the things you listed off, um, that's going to take a lot of work and long time. It's it's like looking at back at the the criminal code changes that that we made. That was you know six eight years in the in the legislature before compromises were made and there was a bill passed. I think that we're going to have to do the same thing when it comes to really solving our budget situation. And um, unfortunately, I don't hear enough folks saying that they're willing to really dig in and invest and make those hard choices that may not get them reelected and and make those statements that are not the great talking points. So I want to spend the last few minutes kind of kind of talking about basically what I feel is the governor's silence, relative silence throughout this whole thing. 
it has been very noticeable to a lot of people that since this story is broke, the governor has not made a public appearance. He has not talked to any reporters. He has issued statements both through his attorney and through Facebook. Um, I'm going to play a clip now from David Barklage, who's a Republican political operative. For full disclosure to our listeners, Barklage is not a fan of the governor. He was the consultant for one of Greitens' opponents during the campaign. But he provides a, a point that I want to, to talk about, especially based on what you said in your Facebook post. Here is Barklage talking to me last week. It's not that he made the mistake. It's how he handles it from here that will impact politics and policy. My opinion is we have seen it um, in, in state elections where if someone handles the issue correctly, that they are able to either survive it or they go on and it doesn't hurt either party. I think it's all going to come down to how the governor handles this from here. Is he transparent? Uh, and while respecting the privacy and the emotional distress on his family, he has an obligation as governor to be very transparent to the legislature and to officials for a thorough investigation to find out what is true and what isn't. I'm interested to hear your sentiments about what the governor should do, whether he should, you know, make himself available to reporters, whether he should talk openly and take tough questions on this, especially in light of the fact of your sentiments that the woman involved here has not come forward. There is a concern about re-victimizing her. But I think that there's also kind of a demand, not just among, you know, Missouri political observers such as ourselves, but I think everyday people for the governor to square with Missourians, so to speak. I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. Well, I will say that I don't feel like his uh, secrecy and being unavailable is anything new. Um, Getting um, access as reporters, from what I've seen, has been very difficult. Um, He hasn't done a lot of press avails outside of very orchestrated things in, like, Facebook live type situations. So I'm not surprised by that same reaction happening around this. I will say what I think is different this time versus, um, you know, previous uh, folks like the gentleman just said in the recording that 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 um, these things have happened over time. What's different now is that we're talking about potential criminal investigation also. And so um, I do, yes, think that the governor needs to be answering questions. Um, He needs to be talking to us <laughs> about what's going on. Um, and I think that that needs to be happening. But at the same time, um, this is a criminal investigation. And so as that continues, um, we, you know, I'm sure that he's going to respond to his attorney and, and look to that, um, to the best options for that um, criminal investigation itself. But I will say that, again, I'm not surprised that he is unaccessible and has canceled all of his press avails and is just not around um, because that's been his pattern of behavior even prior to this allegation. Did you receive any of the calls that he was doing last week to either legislators or the calls from his wife? Did you get any of those? I did not. Um, I will say, um, and and this is a caveat I've told everyone who's asked me that, um, I did not provide my cell phone number. Um, I was asked if I wanted to, and I declined to do so. Um, The governor knows how to find us in the building, and he could very easily walk over and and have discussions or call. Um, But I did not give my cell phone number. So I don't know if that's part of the reason why I have not heard from him, but I don't believe any of my other colleagues have either. I will just say from my experience that I have gotten several opportunities to talk with the governor one-on-one, both right after he was elected and when, um, you know, he was in office. 
I would I would agree with you though that his press availabilities, which are customary when a governor makes public appearance, has have frankly not been what I think reporters like myself want. And um I I, I this has been a really tough week for a lot of us, even mm-hmm. reporters. Like you probably alluded to the ethical dilemmas a lot of us went through when talking about whether to report this or not. We weren't right. entirely in the same situation because we weren't given the amount of information that others were. But I guess as, as a parting thought, um, do you think that this entire situation is kind of a telltale sign that laying low and not being accessible before something like this hits can have consequences when not only we're talking about press governor relations, but also relations with the legislature, because that's also been a common complaint Mm -hmm. that just the relationships just haven't been made by this governor that are required to be effectively communicate what you want, so to speak. I think definitely. Um, I can tell you for me as a legislator, I have, you know, I'm just a freshman Democrat, (laughs) but I have never spoken to the governor um, I have not ever had interaction with him um, or his staff, um, to be frank. And so for the first interaction I ever have with the governor, if he had called to apologize for um, the, what's been going on, would be a very interesting way to start a relationship. Absolutely. Well, Representative, I just want to thank you for coming on this show and, and talking about the, the, the important policy ramifications Uh, that are going forward. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would people follow you either on Twitter or any other part of the World Wide Web? Definitely. I am on Twitter as Crystal underscore Quaid. That's Q-U-A-D-E. And Facebook page and website are both just my name. The underscore is often very important when we're talking about Twitter. (laughs) So thank you very much for your time. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.